0: If you have your Bible with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. If you don't, you can listen along as we continue looking at the book of Revelation. Last week, we were in chapter 12, which is kind of the centerpiece of the book and the great conflict between our Lord Jesus Christ and Satan. Now, here we are about to see two relatively spectacular spectacularly described beasts. So if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word. Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed." Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would open up this passage to us. That You would remind us that You are sovereign. You are in control. You indeed, O Lord, are on the throne. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is perhaps one of the most famous of passages in the book of Revelation. It is fantastic in that sense of the word. It is it is uh, a a wonder to our ears and eyes. Images that are beyond things that we could imagine. It is also a place where there is much uh, explanation that goes into great detail seeming to describe exactly who these beasts are and what they are doing. It is this passage that we get the various tag of Antichrist placed on various persons. And it is this that we will see in just a bit, where even the number 666 itself has become a mechanism for determining exactly who this Antichrist is whether it be Nero, whether it be a Pope, or whether it be Bill Gates. We find various ways to manipulate the numbers and to try and figure out who this is. What I want us again to see as we have been looking through Revelation is that this passage is not some sort of super-secret prediction of the future that only we who are sitting here are privileged to. If you came here this evening thinking or hoping that I would give you secret prophetic insight that you could then take and hoard, you're going to be disappointed. Because this text is not a secret prophecy. This text is a description of the great battle that you and I are in right now. It is a description of the battle between the great dragon, the great deceiver Satan himself, and the Lord God, and His Christ. This is actually a continuation of what we saw last time in Revelation chapter 12. This passage is temporally, that is in terms of time, parallel to what is going on in chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, when we saw that the dragon pursued the woman, the church, and sought to destroy her children because of his great anger because he had been tossed out of heaven. And so this is that great battle that goes on through the ages between Satan and the church. And so what we will see then here this evening, we'll look at the description first of the beast of the sea. Just what is this beast of the sea? And then second, we will see that there is a beast of the earth. How is he different? And what does that mean for us? And then thirdly, and I think most importantly, we will see how we can overcome the beasts. How the church is empowered to overcome the beasts. So the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, and overcoming the beasts. Well, we have this initial scene here where there is a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its horns. And immediately, at least as I read it, I'm almost struck that this is something that is almost a movie. And it's a movie that could only have been made in, say, the last 20 years when they've got the really neat special effects that they could do now where they, they make hobbits walk around and elves and gollum and all this other stuff. What does this beast look like rising out of the sea with all these horns and all these heads? and it's It's chilling. It's like some kind of horror flick. It is meant to be arresting. It is meant to make us look and say, what is this? To grab our attention. That's what John has been doing throughout this book. And it is no accident that this beast comes out of the sea because, you see, the sea is a place of chaos and rebellion. Now, maybe not as much to us today because our experience with the sea, for many of us, is on a cruise ship, like a floating city. You can't even get seasick on a cruise ship. It's so big. And you see this... Big expanse of sea. But imagine if you were out in a storm area on a small boat. Imagine that your experience with the sea was not a cruise ship, but on the ship of the deadliest catch. The sea would be very different for you, wouldn't it? It would be a scary place. It would be a frightening place. It would be a place where you wouldn't be sure what was going to happen. That's the way that the people of Israel thought about the sea. It was their context. It was a place that was dangerous and the Israelites were not known for sailing. I mean, if we think about it, the one Israelite that is really described as being on a boat is Jonah. Not exactly known for his sailing prowess. And so, this beast rises up out of the sea, a sea of chaos and rebellion. And it's very interesting because he is described in almost a mirror image of the dragon himself. Do You see, he's described with ten horns and seven heads. Now, before you try and figure out what that looks like, turn back or listen to chapter 12, verse 3, and how there is a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. He's a mirror image. He is an image of the dragon. What type of image? Well, we see it as the the beast begins to be described in greater detail. He is like a leopard, its feet like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. Now again, that is not very helpful for us from a visual standpoint. Some kind of crazy cross between all these different kinds of animals. But if we think about it, our mind will take us back to Daniel chapter 7, in which there are four beasts that are described. There are the beasts described in this order in Daniel chapter 7. If I can get there briefly. There are four beasts. There is one like a lion with eagle's wings. The second, like a bear. The third, like a leopard. And then the fourth, so horrendous as not to be able to be described like an animal. And those represented various great anti-God empires. And so what John is trying to say here is, this beast is all four of these anti-God forces wrapped up into one. This beast is, in a sense, the personification of politics. Empires and kings who are against God and who seek to assert their authority over the world. It's why they have great confidence. This beast speaks blasphemies. It has authority that it exercises. This is the personification of oppression of God's people by the secular ruling authorities. And so, specifically for John, this reminds us of the Roman Empire, which was the last of those beasts in Daniel. This is uh, the political force of Rome that tried to manipulate and control everything that everyone did. It tried to control the way that the church spread its message. It tried to force Christians to worship the emperor. This is the force of the empire of Rome seeing itself as God itself. That's why the emperors took on divine names and thought that they had divine authority. But it is more than just Rome because if we begin to then speak about this just as one empire, we become no different than any other interpreter who seeks to look through and pin name tags on every little word in this chapter in this book. Now, Rome is just that personification of that political force. Because if we're honest, that kind of political force is evident today. It's evident today when churches in China are shut down and arrested by the ruling authorities. It's evident today why in the Sudan, the government goes out and burns Christian villages and takes children into slavery. It's evident today even in our nation where those who seek to rule seek to do so and have all authority over everything that we believe. It's even gotten to the point in America today where now we are told that our faith must be something that is private. then, Then they make sure that you're never alone. So you can never have even a private faith. This is the authority of Satan working through politics, working through kingdoms and empires to attack our Lord Jesus Christ and His church. You see, this is a beast that outlasts Rome because its hostility is constant. We are now in that last hour even as John was. We are battling the beast. Now, what is this beast? Is it, a, is it Antichrist himself? And if it is Antichrist, is it a single person? Some think that the Antichrist is a person. We're waiting to find out where this person will be born and what their name will be. And some have gone so far as to figure out even what nationality he will be or where he must come from. Others are sure that it is not a person, but instead it is an institution. The reformers thought it was the Catholic Church itself. Some others think that it is the Illuminati or, or some other conspiracy group, the people that put the pyramid on our dollar bills. Others still see it as more of a theological movement. So, what is Antichrist? I think the best way to describe it is it can be all of these things. Because you see, when John wrote his letter, 1 John, he described Antichrist as all or any who oppose Jesus. All who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They are Antichrist. You see, it sounds simple, but that's what it means. If you're Antichrist, you're against Jesus. It's as simple as that. And you see, we jump over that simplicity and we try and make it all complex so that we can somehow get secret knowledge that we can impart to a few of our friends. When in reality, this beast is the force in the world that does the will of Satan and manifests itself in people, in institutions, and in beliefs that attacks our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is known by its counterfeit nature You see here that it has a mortal wound to its head in verse 3. It is a wound that comes from a sword we see later in verse 12. Now, there's a little bit of a translation issue that I want to point out, another possibility. It says one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. And I think you could better describe this as it had a A wound, it was as it was wounded. Just like the lamb, as it was slain. Describing how the lamb looked, it looked as it were slain. Here, this is the beast as it were wounded. You see, the thing that we get sometimes, I think, from this text and from popular eschatology is somehow Antichrist will appear and someone will hit him with a sword or throw a knife at him or shoot a bullet at him, it'll hit him in the head, he'll seem to be dead, and poof, he'll get up and start walking around. And that's how we know he's the Antichrist. So mark that down in your notebooks. Anytime you see somebody that gets hit in the head with a sword, and then is walking around afterwards, he's prime Antichrist candidate. No. What we see here is, a wound to the head, a death blow is given to Satan... And it's given in the cross. But you see, Satan didn't die at the cross, did he? He wasn't finally punished and judged at the cross. But it is a death blow. He is pretending that he can still go on. He is pretending he still has purpose. He is pretending, and others believe, that he still has authority. But he has none. His time is short. He is, if you'll forgive the turn of phrase, He is dead devil walking. That is who Satan is. And his authority is all counterfeit. It is the expression of satanic authority that we see throughout all of history in the empires of Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And we need to remember this. That this authority is counterfeit. That The hope of Satan is counterfeit. This will help us not to be deceived. We are called to that in verse 8. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will not be deceived. Well, that is the beast of the sea. Then let's quickly then turn to the beast of the earth. Who is this twin beast? Well, this beast comes out from the earth. Another beast in verse 11. And it has two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast. And it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Well, if the first beast is the political manifestation of Satan's deception, the second beast is the religious manifestation of Satan's deception. Just like Satan pretends he's in charge of the earth's Empires. He pretends he's in charge of the earth's worship because he wants all people to worship him. That's what's out that's what's going on here. They're all the trappings of religion. Look in verse thirteen. This beast performs great signs. He brings fires down from heaven. And signs are manifested to propose the truth of what is being said. So these signs are done to support what is being said by the beast. The beast actually also has its own sort of sacrament here in verse 16. It causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. More about that in a moment. It is religious in the sense that the beast is urging worship. Not just obedience, but actual worship of the satanic and Satan. And it has this mark. Now this is again one of the more famous parts of this passage. What is the mark of the beast? I think we expected sometime in the 70's and 80's that it would look like one of those barcodes that you see on the bottom of cereal boxes. You know with the the black and the white lines that nobody can read, but now iPhones can take pictures of and tell you what you have. But now we've seen there's new technology. There's there's actually a film out now in which people have uh, how much time they have left in their life and some kind of green laser beam on their arm. Maybe that's what it will be like. Green laser beam numbers. And so we we think about this. What is this? And as we get pushed into this, we start to think about things like we're suspicious of our credit cards and our bank cards. Could that be the mark of the beast? And wait a minute. What about the Fed? Maybe it's Ben Bernanke who's the Antichrist because he's trying to uh, bring about electronic transfers everywhere. And if I don't have an electronic transfer, maybe that's the mark of the beast and I can't sell. And, And you see, we get wrapped around these things. But I think in reality, it's something much simpler and much more profound. Do you notice where the marks are? On the forehead? And on the hand or the arm? What do you associate your head with? Thinking, don't you? What do you say when someone works with their hands? What kind of a person are they? They're a doer, right? Right? What this is describing is Satan seeking to get control over the thoughts and actions of people. To dominate them. To own them. To control them. And when we think about it that way, it becomes much more personal. We look around and we see satanic influence. And it brings us to prayer. To pray for our neighbors. To pray for those who are around us. And we don't have the escape hatch of walking up to our neighbors and going, oh, no 666 there. You must be okay. But when we look at their lives and we see the way they think and see the way they talk and see the way they act. Or maybe it even hits closer to home. Maybe it's when we look in the mirror and we think about what runs through our minds all the time. the kinds of things we are driven to do. You see, when we think Satan's thoughts after him, and when we do his deeds after him, we're serving him. We're not serving our Lord. And so, we must reject this false religion. We must reject its false security. Because you see, this is a secure religion. This is the everybody's doing it principle. Right? They're all running after these beasts. But you see, sometimes, it requires us to stand alone. Sometimes, real courage requires that we say we don't have it all together. That we can't do it ourselves. That we can't find safety in numbers. And the only place to be safe is in the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this beast also goes beyond the day of John. is a part of all world religions. It's a part of all false philosophies. This beast is the king of hope without Jesus. And it's a false hope. Now, the number of this beast, just very briefly, is 666. And what does this mean? Well, so many have tried to take the ancient practice of gematria, which is taking numbers and assigning letters to them and coming up with a name. And you can do all sorts of things. If you misspell Nero in Hebrew, you get Nero from six six six. But you have to do it in Hebrew, and you have to misspell it. You can do it all sorts of other ways and names because there is a familiarity. Because see, this numbers and names thing is like when you hear on um, uh, when you hear on the television or the radio an advertisement to call one eight hundred insurance. How do you find insurance on your phone? Well, each of the numbers has a letter that goes along with it. Now, this is not some sort of cosmic cell phone to describe who the Antichrist is. No, this is rather a number that has meaning. If we think about, we've seen this before, seven being the number of perfection, of power and authority, the seven spirits of God. And if 777 would be a triple perfection, about as good as you could get, then 666 is a trinity of imperfection. It's about as bad as you can get. It falls short. It's one short of perfection tripled. It is a sign of falsehood, a sign of falling short of the Lord, a sign of false authority and grasping. That's what 666 is. Well, so we've looked at these two beasts and a number, and it's all interesting on some level, but how does that affect you and me today? Lastly, we must look at this text and understand what it means to overcome the beasts. And there are two things that we must think about. First, we must know the war. And then, second, we must know how to overcome. The first part of the battle is knowing you are in a battle, and we are in a war. You don't win a war when you think you're at peace. A classic illustration of that would be in the lead up to World War II. Hitler was sure that he knew what he was doing. He was sure that he was going to advance his cause, and all of those who were around him from England and Italy and France, they didn't know there was a war on, really. They thought it could be handled. They deceived themselves. We must also know about this war that we are in, though, that Satan's time is short. You see, if we read chapter 13 in the context of chapter 12, 13 isn't so scary. We see these beasts, We see these fake authorities, but we know that the time of Satan is short. But the last thing that we must remember so we're not overconfident is that even though Satan's time is short, he is not going to give up. He is not laying down. He will continue to wage this war. and Therefore, we must as well. So how then do we overcome in this war? How do we overcome the beasts? Well, first, we must know that Jesus Christ is already victorious. The death wound has already been delivered. We don't need to save the day. You see, I think sometimes we get the impression in this cosmic battle that we need to be Rambo, or the good version of the Terminator, or the guy from Die Hard. We need to come in and we need to save the church and save the day and save Satan and we need to work. When in reality, we're better described in that sort of theatrical way as the people standing by clapping, knowing that the hero has already won the victory and knowing we couldn't do it. We must know that Jesus is already victorious, but we must also seek wisdom. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. And this is not the kind of wisdom that figures out puzzles. This is the kind of wisdom that knows God and his ways and seeks after him. So we know that Jesus is victorious. We seek after wisdom. And then finally, we must endure patiently. Look at verse 10. The same turn of phrase. Here is a call. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. If we're honest with ourselves, life is hard, isn't it? Life can even be miserable at times. People don't understand why we say certain things. We have fights. People hurt us. People steal from us. We're called to endure patiently. Because this is not the end. This is not... The end all be all. Praise be to God. This is a war that Jesus is bringing to a successful completion. And when He does, then the world will be different. Then we will see Jesus as He is. Then we will know and experience the victory in all of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You, Lord, are victorious. That You in Jesus Christ have won the victory. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us patience, that you would give us endurance, that we might stand up in the hour of need. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.